Okay, let's have a moment of silence to invite God into this deal. Invite God to be a part of this thing. God of your understanding. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others recover from alcoholism. This is a combination of traditions 1 through 5 and 9. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. That's tradition 3. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. That's tradition 7. AA is not allied with any sect, and I'm real careful about reading that. You know, the first meeting or so I was at, they were reading that preamble, and I thought they were saying AA wasn't allied with any sects, and I was thinking, man, I'm going to have to give that up too. Hell, Bell. <laughs> that was not good news. I hadn't had any in a long time, now you understand. You know, I'd, I'd kind of become bisexual by the time I got to AA. You know, if I wanted sex, I had to buy it. <laughs> anyway, it says AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. That's tradition six. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. That's tradition ten. Our primary purpose is to stay sober to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. That's tradition five. So you see, in effect, each time we read the preamble at uh, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, we are referring to most of our traditions of how we hang together. There's one other story that really needs to be told is how did we become Alcoholics Anonymous? As I've said, we were originally affiliated with the Oxford groups. Uh, uh, we went to uh, Bill in New York, Bob in Akron went to Oxford group meetings. Uh, they tended, uh, drunks tended to hang together. The Oxford groups were upper and upper middle and upper class people. They didn't like the drunks very much. We kind of hung together. Uh, for a while we were called the drunk squads of the Oxford group. Then we were called a nameless bunch of, of drunks. Uh, in 1937, Bill started separating from the Oxford groups because they didn't think much of us working with drunks. And slowly in Akron, uh, separation started to develop, which really wasn't actually accomplished until 1939 with the Oxford groups. And there were some problems about staying with the Oxford groups because the Oxford groups uh, were, uh, became around this time prescribed by the Catholic <coughs> Church, saying Catholics couldn't be members. And we were worried about uh, uh, whether we were going to get any Catholics uh, uh, in if, if we stayed close to the Oxford group. So, and, you know, there was a lot of divine intervention in here. Like when Bill originally wrote the steps, he put in there, humbly on your knees, ask him to remove our shortcomings. And somebody pointed out to Bill, said, Bill, Jews don't pray on their knees. Bill said, we don't have any Jewish members, but you know what? We might get one one day. We might find a drunk that's this Jewish. And, and we'd exclude him if we put on our knees in there. And he, put, and he took that out. So there was just a lot of little divine coincidences being at, being at work. And they were getting ready to publish this book in uh, the spring of 1939, and they still didn't have a name for the, for the thing. You know, they couldn't decide what to call it. Bill once, in all humility, suggested the Bill W. movement. That was kind of shouted down. You can imagine, you know. Probably like the time Kip said, well, we could call it the Kip C. group, you know. But, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Kip. Uh, as Kip sees it, yes. Uh, don't, don't worry, Kip, if I ever get that far in the steps, I'll, ma I'll make amends for my comments if I ever get that far down in the steps. So, uh, Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they had suggested some other things. They were going to call it 100 Men, and Florence Rankin got sober for a little while, and she says, No, you don't. You'll call it 100 Men and a Woman. And uh, uh, they said, Well, that's, that's a little long, so they scratched that one. They were all in favor of a title called The Way Out. And somebody suggested, well, there may be some other books called The Way Out. So they sent old Fitzmayhew down to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to research the title. 
and he reported back that there were already 12 books published with the title of The Way Out and Alcoholics Being Superstitious didn't want to be number 13 of anything. Meanwhile, Bill was dragging some drunks out of Bellevue Hospital out of the psychiatric wards trying to uh, uh, sober up some of them. And uh, <coughs> one of them, they really wanted to get sober because this guy really had a buck. His name was Joe Worth. And he had been the original publisher and founder of the New Yorker magazine, which, of course, is still, still publishing today. Old Joe liked to drink a bit, and in, by 19, uh, late 1938, had drank himself into uh, literally Korsakoff syndrome, the wet brain syndrome. And he had been hospitalized at, at, at Bellevue, and they drug him out to a meeting at uh, the Clinton Street house that Bill was living in. The reason Bill was living there is it still <laughs> belonged to Lois's uh, parents. It was about to be foreclosed on, but... Uh, they had a place, and they were having a meeting there. And uh, poor old Joe, although he had once been one of the most dynamic uh, businessmen in New York City, was a babbling idiot back over in the corner, and they were having a meeting on what to call this movement. We didn't have a name. And they were debating these various titles going back and forth, back and forth, and somebody noticed that the babbling uh, guy back in the corner was saying, Anonymous Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. So they said, wait a minute, what's this guy saying? And then he spoke up very clearly and said, call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, Alcoholics Anonymous what? He says, Alcoholics Anonymous, period. They looked at him. They looked at each other. And then it started buzzing and talking around. You know, and this title started being debated. Started being debated. And when the way out was rejected as being number 13, we decided to call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's how we got our name. We got our name from a babbling idiot out of a mental hospital who was returned back there and never left the mental hospital again until the poor guy died uh, of his alcoholism in 1946. So uh, I hope you're starting to sense the chain of divine providence that has taken place in the founding of this fellowship. How this incredible cast of characters has, has, has come together how they've been able to make decisions and take actions that they didn't even fully understand at the time, which have affected your lives and have affected mine. And to see that there is a certain divine alchemy at work here. There is a certain providence at work. That out of our craziness and our alcoholism and our uh, greed and all that, somehow or other we came together. Somehow or other we came together. And this book got published. And and the growth was real slow even, even after the book got published. And I've listened to a tape by Jim Burwell, who was one of the original members. He's the guy that's responsible for God as we understood him being placed in, in there very prominently. He's the atheist that's spoken of in the big book. He's Jim the used car salesman in chapter 3. And I've heard his tape, and he said, yeah, we had 100 members coming and going, mostly going. Huh. But he said, after the book was published, we had something upon which we could all agree. And he says, and then and only then did growth happen. And it started very slowly at first. You know, there was a little article in Liberty Magazine in 1939. A couple hundred people came in. It was a little too gaudy, the, the article, you know. It was called Alcoholics and God. In, uh, in February 1940, John D. Rockefeller, who hadn't been heard from for several years, gave a dinner for AA. And Bill thought he was going to get a fortune again. And all the wealthy and famous were invited to the dinner. But at the dinner, Nelson Rockefeller, who was later to become vice president of the United States, stood up and said, my father can't be here because he's very, very ill. He was to die shortly thereafter. He can't be here. He loves this work. He thinks it's one of those fabulous things that ever happened. 
but we're happy to announce to you this is a work of goodwill and you don't need to commit, commit any money to it. Whereupon $10 billion got up and walked out of the room without giving AA any money. Thank you, God. <laughs> and Dr. Bob were not happy at the time, but that's kind of what happened. Um, the uh, uh, growth was real slow until the spring of 1941 when a man named Jack Alexander, who was probably the most prominent reporter in the country at the time, for the Saturday Evening Post, which uh, an article by Jack Alexander would be the equivalent to receiving a major segment on 60 Minutes today. Uh, he was well known. He had uh, exposed a lot of the uh, rackets and the mafia, and he wrote investigative reports, and he was going to expose Alcoholics Anonymous. He was going to show us up as a racket. And he went to talk to Bill Wilson. Bill said, well, just keep an open mind and come to some of our meetings with us. So he started coming to some meetings, went out to Akron, went to some meetings, and became the biggest fan of Alcoholics Anonymous in the country. He saw that we really had no agenda other than to help other alcoholics. We weren't out after a buck. We were something different. And he published an article that appeared in the spring of 1941 in the Saturday Evening Post. It was extremely favorable, and thousands upon thousands of requests came in. As a direct result of it, the first people got sober in, in Los Angeles, California. It was founded in California, right around right around that time. There had actually been a meeting a little earlier. A guy named Mart had showed up drunk from Las Vegas with a big book in his trunk and didn't ever knew how he got there. Uh, didn't know what it was, but he had run out of whiskey, so he ran the damn big book, read the big book, and, and called, a, called the first meeting of AA shortly before the Saturday Evening Post article. And, of course, Sybil, who died just a few years ago, uh, got sober as a result of that and stayed sober for all those years. She ran the central office. And, but thousands and thousands of, of alcoholics started to join. You know, within a year, our membership had jumped up to like 10,000. Meanwhile, the year before, they'd had a, a big article in Cleveland and in the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspapers, and a thousand or two joined in Cleveland, and a period of great growth was, 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 was upon us. Actually, the first meeting ever called Alcoholics Anonymous was held in Cleveland in May of 1939. Before then, uh, no, nobody had known what to call them. We had just published this book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and a crusty old guy named Clarence Snyder that he was going to have a meeting in Cleveland and he was going to call it Alcoholics Anonymous after the title of the book. And we started having these meetings and they started being called AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And we grew and we grew. And even as World War II broke out, our growth continued. And through the, through the years of the war, we found that people could be in the service and still stay sober and some of them carried their big books with them. And, uh, and uh, at home, growth continued. But there was a lot of problems. There was a lot of problems in all, in all this growth. It just expanded. It just grew like crazy. You know, by the end of World War II, we may have had 20,000 people or better. Remember, this appeared four or five years. All of a sudden, from, from 100, we got like 20,000 people all across the country. And people were doing a lot of crazy things. There's a guy down in Florida selling memberships. All the groups are adopting all these series of rules of things that you have to, to do to join. And groups were looking for the pure alcoholic. And... Bill was getting all these rules in there, and he looked at that and said, my God, Dr. Bob and I couldn't even be members if we had to follow all these things, you know? And there's that famous story he found in the 12 and 12, which is the absolute truth. I have a copy of the card. Uh, 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 Connecticut, this group adopted 61 rules that they were going to follow, and they all ended up getting drunk. And the guy wrote in Bill and says, Bill, we've decided to abolish the 61 rules, but we have adopted rule 62. And it's a little card, and on the outside it says Rule 62. You open up on the inside, it says, Don't take yourself so damn seriously. So AA, as of right now, only has one rule. We've got 12 traditions, we've got one rule, and the rule is Rule 62. Don't take yourself so damn seriously. And I hope we haven't done that today. But there was this enormous period of growth, but AA was falling apart. People were breaking anonymity all over. There was controversy as to 
whether a certain age could go on the radio or uh, at the time, you know, of course, TV really didn't exist to any great extent, and uh, which direction Alcoholics Anonymous was going in. And at that point, a guy named Milton Maxwell, who was not himself an alcoholic, but was a great friend of Alcoholics Anonymous, he uh, uh, later became a, a non-alcoholic trustee. AA uh, World Services has, is run by a board of trustees, which uh, consists of 14 alcoholics and seven non-alcoholics, people that just love us and willing to serve with us, you know, to help us out. At the time, there were more non-alcoholics than alcoholics on the board of trustees. They were afraid all the alcoholics would get drunk and run off with all the money. Of course, they didn't have any money, but they were still afraid of it, you know. We were going to get some soon. You know how we are. Um, Milton Maxwell wrote Bill and actually sent along a little article which was published in the Grapevine saying, Bill, have you ever heard of the Washingtonians? You remember we talked about those this morning? And Bill, had, you know, a hundred years later, Bill had never heard of the Washingtonians. He had to go down to a library to research it. He said, this group in the 1840s, which almost had the solution, as I pointed out to you uh, this morning, tore itself apart and dissolved. And Bill looked at that and said, my God, that's what's happening to us. We've got people out striving for power and prestige. We've got people breaking anonymity. We've got all this craziness going on. Maybe I need to do something about it. And in 1946, he sat down and started writing from our experience, not from the, so much the good experience, but from the weaknesses, as he, as he points out in his article. He says, you know, these 12 traditions are confessions of our individual weaknesses, our individual character defects, and our character defects as groups. And he wrote a series of articles which were published in the Grapevine 46-47, right around in that period. Again, you can find these original articles in Language of the Heart, the book that's published by the Grapevine that I have up here. And they were called 12 Points to Assure Our Future. Then he later on adapted it to the idea of being traditions. They were written originally in what we call the long form. I have passed out to you, and if anybody didn't get it, and now you can find these in your, in your big book, but I, I wrote it out here because there's one place to hide something from an alcoholic. Put it in your big book. Works for the guys that I sponsor. Uh, and what I've done here, just so you can make a comparison, the long form of the tradition is in black and the short form of the tradition is in blue. And I've, I've put each, each tradition there, there together. And Bill wrote these things, and initially there was a lot of resistance. Bill would go around trying to talk about these traditions, and everybody would say, God, Bill, don't, don't tell us about the traditions. Tell us about your hot flash spiritual experience. Tell us where you hide your bottles. Tell us some drinking stories. But for God's sake, don't talk about these, these traditions. But Bill, of single-minded purpose and realizing that if AA didn't hang together, it would not survive. It would not survive. Kept hammering away at these traditions. There was still a lot of division in the movement. The Akron people hated the New York people, and New York people hated the Akron people. Now, Bill and Bob got along just fine. They never had an argument. But all the people around them, you know, the people in Akron wouldn't talk to the people from New York. The people from New York would not talk to the people from Akron. Bill and Bob agreed there had to be something done in order to get people together. The suggestion was made, well, let's have a, let's have a convention and get everybody together to see if we can agree on these, on these traditions. People in Akron said, we're not going to New York. People in New York said, we're not going to Akron. So they came up with a solution. It was, go to Cleveland. <laughs> so they went to Cleveland in July of 1950. And we had our first international convention. And almost 5,000 alcoholics attended it. And at the close of the convention, a group of men went up, and I had the original tapes of that deal. You can hear them get up, and each one talked about two of the traditions, sell them to the, to, to the conference. And at the close of the conference, our 12 traditions were adopted. 
And these traditions, just like the 12 steps, it was later decided, cannot be changed except, not one word in them can be changed, except by a vote of three quarters of all the groups in the world after giving six months notice. So it's unlikely that, because uh, you can't, you know, imagine y'all trying to agree on, you know, imagine my group trying to agree on some changes in, in, in the thing, you know. So we've pretty well decided that this is the basis upon which we're going to hang together. And the first tradition says each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows close afterwards. I don't know of a society on the face of the earth that cares more about individual welfare than Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know any other society where people will get out of bed at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to, to travel across town to spend time with another drunk. I don't know any other place. Some of us were talking about it out there, Scotty and I, about how our, our doors are always open and we never know when we uh, come downstairs in the morning what, uh, which drunk is going to happen to be on the couch at that time. You know, we're certainly concerned with individual welfare, but to some extent we have to give this up when, the, when, the, when our group holds, holds together. Because uh, we lose our group. If you lose the robber's roost, baby, you've got no place to recover. If I lose a strange camel's group, I've got no place to recover. And sometimes this gets challenged. It gets challenged. Uh, Kip and I were talking about it, and, and some of the others were talking about it. You know, sometimes you get these people being sent there by the courts, and you wonder, uh, uh, these people aren't part of us. They don't want to be there. I think everybody was there Thursday night. The robbers roost wanted to be there. That's the way it looked to me. The way it looked to me. I mean, uh, uh, we don't test sincerity there, but generally everybody was there because they, they wanted to be there. Uh, sometimes... And I've, I've seen groups fall apart. My group started because the group I was going to was being bombarded with busloads of people from treatment centers, mostly adolescents who did not want to be there, running around the room. I got a resentment, grabbed the guy and said, let's go over to my house and read the book to each other and screw this. Huh? That's how we get started, resentment in the coffee pot. You know, that's how AA grows. I think the greatest story on that, old uh, Don Pete from Aurora, Colorado, tells a story in 89. He took the message over to Russia. And A got started in Russia, and he got back to his office in New York two weeks later. And he says, as I walked into my office, the general service office in New York, the phone was ringing, and I lift up the phone, and there's this Russian voice on the other line says, this is Ivan from Moscow Group Number 2. Don says, I thought you only had Moscow Group Number 1. He says, Moscow Group Number 1 was not doing it right. We have started a Group 2. <laughs> Is that Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's how Robert Roos got started. That's how Strange Cavills got started. That's how Moscow Group Number Two got started. So when we see a threat to our own unity, but something isn't doesn't feel right in there, then our tendency is to you know we've got to do one of two things. We've got to either cure it right then, or, or many times we go start another group. Better just to cure it right then, you know. We, we talk to each other in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's tradition too. For our group purposes, but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. And I want to tell you that as close as I could come today, if I was going to stand up here and give you a talk on James's concept of the higher power, what I have come to believe in in this program, I could not express it any better than that what exists in my heart today is a loving God as he seems to express himself in our group conscience. In our group conscience. When alcoholics talk to each other, 
when we are gathered together for the purposes of sobriety, I believe that God, as I understand Him, is 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 there is there present, and I believe that it comes out of the group. It can't always just come out of just me. Okay. I saw it at Robert's Roost on on Thursday night. I'll tell you, how I saw the group conscience work. There was one guy in there that's been having a lot of slips, and he was making a lot of complaints about the group wasn't doing it right, and they weren't hanging together, and weren't staying sober, and everything else. And I heard the group conscience speak. You know, I heard. Scotty pipe up and talk for a while. Mike come talk for a while, and they were saying, as I heard, the group conscience was, yeah, but we do do things together. You know, we're getting ready to go this weekend and all be together. We're going to hang around in the parking lot after. We're going to be over at these people's houses. You see, and, I, and what I'm listening for there is this wasn't just Scotty and Mike speaking. It wasn't Billy speaking. He talked uh, on that deal. This was the group of Alcoholics Anonymous. This was something that Scotty and Mike and Billy, in and of themselves just as James in and of himself. It's not real good at coming up with thoughts like that. But in our meetings, where the Spirit is in there, and the Spirit was in there Thursday night, the Spirit's in here today. This is what keeps me coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous. We bring the Spirit into this room. We leave here, this is just going to be just any other room. Just any other room. We'll get into that later. It's why Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't bother to own churches or property or something like that. Because we bring the Spirit the Spirit with us. And it's the Spirit of, of God as I understand you. No, I can't get any more complicated than that. And we learn to listen to each other. As alcoholics, as what Bill called us rebellious nonconformists, unwilling or unable to conform to the laws of God or man, who have never listened to anybody in our lives. We pretend to listen. We pretend to listen, especially if the guy, person has we call inside of Louisiana, the come see on us. You know, if the judge is talking, <laughs> if she who must be obeyed is talking, you know, if somebody's talking, we say, oh yeah, oh yeah, but we're thinking, nah, nah. Come in here and we learn to listen to each other. We learn to listen to each other. My first sponsor, the old goat, told me that it's not important what you say at an AA meeting. Because, you know, I'm always obsessing over what I'm getting ready to say. It's not important. It's not even important if you talk. So you hear a lot of meetings where you say it's important. You go around the room and everybody talks. It's not true. Not true at all. He says what's important is what you hear. It's what you hear at the meeting. If you're called upon to share, you share. Or you pass. But it's what you hear. For the first time in your life, you have sat there for an hour each day and you have listened to other human beings open up their heart and speak to you in the language of the heart. And some of that is going to penetrate if you keep coming back. And he says, that's the group conscience. What is a conscience but that still small voice inside of us that knows, that knows what's right and what's not right. That still small voice inside of us that speaks to us of the presence of God book talks about it in chapter 4 that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is this fundamental idea of God and we express that at these meetings that's the group conscience so we need to listen to each other and just popping off at the group isn't necessarily a group conscience but when you hear one person after another after another as we did Thursday night saying wait a minute this is how our group feels this is how we act this is what we do that is the group conscience talking that is my viewpoint the voice of God speaking so we listen. We listen to each other. We listen to each other. What a miracle. What a miracle. The finest meditation, I'm told, I was told, that I will ever do is go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Meditation, step 11, is a word. It comes from two Latin words. Medi, meaning middle, and terry, meaning to tarry, to, to linger, to hang out. To hang out in the middle of. 
I always thought it was my girlfriend Kathy sitting naked on the bed after smoking dope going, mmm. <laughs> you know, and I never was good at going, mmm. I'm still not good at going, mmm. I get into silent meditation and I start thinking about sex, you know, just right away, or money, one of the two, one of the two, usually women. You know, I'm, I'm not good at that. But I can hang out in the middle of an AA meeting. I can do that kind of meditation, voice of God speaking, group conscience, speaking. That's James' experience on it. That's the finest meditation I do. I do that when I'm listening to tapes. That's meditation I can do. Listen to another alcoholic sharing his experience, strength, and hope. Voice of God speaking there, because that was recorded at a meeting. So we listen to each other. The first tradition one one says we hang together. Tradition seven two says we listen to each other. Not only during our meetings, but we've been listening to each other out here in between the meetings. We've been listening to each other out before the meeting. We're going to gather after this meeting and listen to each other. We're going to talk to our sponsors. Voice of God speaking. Three. This is a misunderstood tradition. Let's talk about this just, just, just a moment or two. District 3 in Shark Farm says the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Well, better understood in the long form. Long form says our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. So in the short form, when they said stop drinking, they're talking about suffering from alcoholism. We occasionally get some people in and say, well, I have a desire to stop drinking. Have you ever been drunk? No, but I have a desire to stop drinking, you know, and the, the uh, clinic sent me over here because, um, you know, look at them, goofy, Jesus. Uh, they usually don't come back after a while. But for me, while well, they kind of disrupt the meaning, you know, the, the, and what is a desire? You know, in my own personal experience, just a sort of want to want to wasn't a desire. You know, well, I think I might, and I kept getting drunk. You know, when I'm talking about desire, I'm talking about the heat you felt at 17 in the back seat of the old Chevy at the drive-in with Nancy. I'm talking about desire, baby. I'm talking about what you wanted right then. That's desire. That's desire. It says in the fifth chapter, if you want what we've got, desire what we've got. Willing to go to any lengths to get it. That's the kind of desire. And we don't exclude anybody. Like I said, my group would say if you've got even a suspicion that alcohol has anything to do with your problems, because hell, when everybody got here, most of us would have rather been drug addicts or most of us would rather been schizophrenic or major depressives or some other fancy deal. I know I would. Nobody wants to be an alcoholic. Even today, with all the publicity and everything and the so-called removal of the stigma, we're still at the bottom of the food chain. It's much more respectable to be an addict or a schizophrenic or something like that. Nobody wants to be a wino. Huh? And not only that, it's hard to figure out you're an alcoholic. Huh? So we welcome in anybody who has even the slightest suspicion that drinking might possibly, conceivably, have something to do with the current fact that they have had to go to the incredible step of coming to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know. We're not listed in the social register. You know, this isn't something you can put on your resume. And, but if you aren't suffering from alcoholism, I'm sorry, we can't help you. We can't help you. You know, uh, this, uh, the question was raised as early, and there are articles in here that we have pamphlets on. Problems other than alcohol and, and those goofballs, both, both pamphlets. 1958. Think this is a new problem? 1958, in the Grapevine Bill, dealing with the questions of, of whether a non-alcoholic drug addict can be a member of AA. 
He says experience has taught us that this can't happen because they're not alcoholic. Now he goes on to say though, if you're alcoholic and you also have a problem with drugs or anything else, you're welcome. But you gotta be an alcoholic first. You know, you hear this crap coming out of treatment centers, a drug is a drug is a drug. Well, next time you have a headache, take a handful of X-Lax. <laughs> Geez, I'm just an alcoholic, but I've used and I've used enough uppers and downers and 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 everything to to know that a drug and the drug is not a drug for crying out loud. You use the downers to get down. You use the speed to drink all night. You use the you know you 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 know you want to feel omnipotent, do a little coke. You know, want to run the world. The principle that Alcoholics Anonymous works on is the fact that Bill and Abby could get together because they were both alcoholic. Bill and Dr. Bob get together, both because they were alcoholics. Both Bill and Bob use drugs. So what? It's in their stories. It's in the book. Huh? Bill talks about using, being given sedatives and the next morning drinking gin and sedatives. What the hell do you think he's talking about? Doesn't matter what the hell you've used, but if you come in here, catch alcoholism. We have a program of recovery for you. We don't care what else you are. Don't tell me you're an anda. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Well, I'm sorry, you're screwed because we ain't got no ANDA program. We've got Alcoholics Anonymous in here. There's a great difference between being an ANDA and being also. I sponsor men who are alcoholics, and they're also members of Cocaine Anonymous. They are, and they don't go in there and say they're a member, they're an alcoholic. They go in there as a member of Cocaine I sponsor a guy who's a member of Narcotics Anonymous. He's also a member of Narcotics Anonymous. He goes to that fellowship and doesn't screw that fellowship up with bringing his alcoholism in. And he doesn't try to screw ours up. As long as you're something else, it's just that old desire, I'm different, I'm special, I'm better than you, yeah, yeah. You know? And we can't live like that. Ego deflation is death. I have to deflate that ego that I'm separate, I'm different, and I'm anything other than just like you are. My experiences may very well include drugs, they may very well include a lot of other perversions or strange things, you know, most of which is best safe for a fifth step, except around this group. I've heard some interesting things around here. But uh, by and large, it's an, I'm just an alcoholic, okay? And I found a way to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body called alcoholism. Alcoholism. And I also sponsored men who have died because they didn't know that. Harvey, I could not get to go to NI. It was just barely, maybe somewhat an alcoholic. It was a real live heroin junkie. Yeah. And I can't get him to go to NI. And he keeps coming to us and he keeps coming to us. And he, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. And one morning at 3 a.m. he rigged himself up and uh, he od and he died. Who's he going to call? Me, his, his alcoholic sponsor? You know, he's hardly ever been drunk in his life. And he didn't have that, what did Carl Jung call it in that letter that I passed out to you? The protective wall of human community? He had nobody in NA to call and say, my God, the walls have closed in, whatever I'm going to use, I'm going to, you know. He didn't have anybody. He didn't have anybody. That's why, believe me, I respect cocaine anonymous. I respect narcotics anonymous. I respect Al-Anon, O'Reason, any of those deals that uses the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. But we aren't all things to all people. We're going to talk about this more in Tradition 5. You have to be an alcoholic to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, 
Isn't it amazing I'm even having to stand up here and say that? I mean, that's her name. <laughs> anyway, it kind of seems like how that, that works. And uh, just because you got to stand here on a court card don't mean you're an alcoholic. You know, people say, well, you got a 502. We call it DWI back home. I had to start over in this program when I was five years sober. Lost all my money. Got into some crazy stuff. My sponsor died. Didn't bother to ask anybody's advice. Built condos in the French Quarter instead of practicing law. Crashed. Bankrupt. Instead of living in a $350,000 house near the New Orleans Country Club and living in a $175 month walk-up apartment on Magazine Street, had to start over by instead of handling six-figure personal injury cases, I'm going down to traffic court and hustling DWI cases. And I ended up representing a lot. I stayed sober, incidentally. I started over without taking a drink. And I represented hundreds of DWI cases down there. It's how I started over. There's no greater percentage of people who get their first DWI that are alcoholics than there are here. Most of them are social drinkers who've got no damn business drinking and driving a car. We do a lot better drinking and driving than they do. They're a menace to society. They need to be taken off the streets, for Christ's sake. But they're not alcoholic. That's what the book calls problem drink, you know, the heavy drinker, the problem drinker. We probably do them some good by exposing them to us, but they're not alcoholic. You know how you tell the alcoholic has got a DWI? It's real easy. The non-alcoholic says, oh, God, I shouldn't have drank so much. I'm not going to do it again. Most of them never do it again. The alcoholic says, man, they wouldn't have stopped me if I remembered to turn my lights on or if I, 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 I dropped my wallet on the floor or uh, the cops are picking on me. He was deliberately waiting for me there. He's out to get me. Uh, and I only had two. I say, hey, I want to talk to you about a little deal I go to. You know, come, come, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. You know, we don't connect our drinking with our problems. We don't connect our drinking with our problems. That's the essence of the alcoholic condition. So there are a lot of people that come here that are not alcoholic. We can be helpful to some of them, especially at our open meetings, our open public meetings, but at our closed meetings for alcoholics so that we can feel this common bond that we feel here this weekend. Tradition four is real simple. Long form says each gay group should be responsible to no other authority than its own conscience. And the short form, it says autonomous. Autonomous is nothing another but a big, fancy word that means self-governing. You know, I'd learned in my own personal life to be self-governing, just to do the things that I needed to do. Get up in the morning, make my bed, go to work, do things like that, be self-governing. Group has to learn the same thing. It says it's the robber's roof group. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take care of its own affairs unless it's going to get ready to do something that's going to affect AA as a whole. Suppose you guys are getting ready to plan a dinner and you find that intergroup's also having a dinner the same night. Well, this tradition suggests that we cooperate. We call up and say, hey, either you move your dinner or we'll move ours, but let's, let's just agree, you know, because that's going to affect you. Common politeness, that's all it is. It's not a complicated tradition, but it allows each group the right to be wrong. Y'all, we do things differently from one group to the next, you know. Uh, my group holds hands to say the Lord's Prayer. Y'all just stand there and say the Lord's Prayer, you know. And you don't hold hands at the end of the meeting. You didn't Thursday night. That's okay. That's group custom. We, a lot of us do things just real, real differently. We have the right to do things differently. I may open, we may open our meeting a little differently or, or run our deal. So what? That makes for great variety and wonderful things. But it was your group conscience that decided to see tradition kind of build one upon the other. You said, we're going to get together. We're going to listen to each other. And this is what we're going to do. We think we can stay sober. And the evidence that whatever you're doing is working is all the guys that are in this room at 410 on a Friday, uh, on a Saturday afternoon when there's a beautiful day out there and y'all are all in here doing Alcoholics Anonymous. You have newcomers here. You've got guys here with eight, nine days and, and, and 80 days and 90 days. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
That's just amazing. A bunch of newcomers sitting here listening to this stuff. Something you're doing is working right. That's the fourth tradition. That's the fourth tradition. Fifth tradition. If there's any one tradition that's under attack, and I talked a little bit about it in the third tradition, because it and the fifth kind of go together. In the long form, let's look at it in the long form. The short form says each group has one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. The fifth tradition in the long form says each alcoholic synonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having one primary purpose. We're a spiritual entity. We're not an organization or anything else. We're a group of people that have gotten together for spiritual purposes with one primary purpose. We're one trick pony. There's one thing we do, and that's help alcoholics. We cannot be all things to all people. And I have seen group after group after group dissolve because people have brought other agendas into that group. When I come into this meeting, I am an alcoholic, period. I'm an alcoholic, period. No. And I've seen people bring a lot of agendas into groups. No. I have no use for a black in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have every bit of love in the world for a couple of black men that I sponsor who just happen to be black, but they're first and foremost members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got no use for homosexuals in Alcoholics Anonymous. But some of the people that helped me the most when I was first getting sober were members of Alcoholics Anonymous who just also happened to be homosexual. I couldn't have made it through the first year without Wally. He died of AIDS. He died of AIDS. And I, I mourn him to this day. And I, I swear to God I couldn't have made it. First and foremost, he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't bring in some other agenda. He didn't come in here to flout his, his homosexuality and Jerome didn't come in here the guy sponsored his postman to flout his blackness. You know, one of the great experiences I had, I went down to the post office late one night, big post office in New Orleans. You got to understand, Trump's a goofy guy, man. Comes in, he's about ready to get fired and, and sponsoring him. You know, he gets sober and he calls me one day and he says, James, James, I got to talk to you. I, gotta talk. I thought, oh my God, they fired Jerome. I said, meet me in my house right away. Meet me in the house. I said, Jerome, what's the matter? What's the matter? I just knew they got me fired. He said, oh, I don't think I can handle it. I said, Jerome, calm down. Tell me what's going on. He says, they give me a promotion. They're going to make me a supervisor. I don't think I can handle it. I said, oh, you know. So, so I'm going there late one night. It's just a shift change. I'm, I'm bringing a bunch of mail, a bunch of AA mail, a bunch of flyers I'm getting ready to mail out. And the shift change is happening. Most of the postal workers in New Orleans are black. And there's a huge sea of people coming out of there. And I'm dumping the deal. And you're all saying here, James. I'll turn around and say, Jerome. And he runs up to me. And I'm, we're holding hands. We're, I mean, holding each other. And we're jumping up and down and hugging and everything. These people are looking at us. Jerome looks at one of them and says, oh, he's my brother. They're looking like, you know, strange deal. First and foremost, he's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I go right on down the list, you know. Don't bring in, don't bring in these, other, these other things. We're not interested in them. You become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all the rest of that stuff doesn't matter. It ceases to matter. You know, who you're sleeping with ceases to matter. What hue and color you are, what religion you are. We don't care. We got all kinds. One of the things that makes this place so damned interesting. But first and foremost, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what we do in our in our in our in our meetings. That's what we do in our meetings. Tradition six speaks to problems of money, property, and authority may easily divert us from our primary spiritual aim, it says in the long form. It says virtually the same thing in the short form. What are my character defects? All the time out there I was I was trying to hustle money property and authority. You know, I wanted to control you, I wanted to get money from you, and I wanted you to think I was absolutely wonderful. 
We have found it necessary as a society. And incidentally, each of these things, this is just James's opinion on it, you know. Kip wanted me to tell that story, if I can skip back to traditions three and five. You know, how did all this come about? In 1941, at our earliest clubhouse, on the 24th Avenue Clubhouse, 24th Street Clubhouse in New York City, one day they're beating on the door, they go and open the door, there's this big New York Irish cop standing there, and he's holding this thing in his hand, and it's dressed like a woman, it's got black face, it's drunk, and he says, I'm tired of fooling with him, and throws him in the door, says, y'all deal with him. And they look down there, and there's this drunken black transvestite there. And they said, what are we going to do? So they start trying to talk to him, he's about half over, he says, yeah, I would like to get sober. They call Bill, who's upstairs. Bill lost his house, he's living upstairs. And he comes down, and he looks at this thing, and it turns out, they question him a little further, he was also a heroin addict. And he, he had a little parts in Broadway shows, but he liked to get dressed up as a woman and go out and get drunk, you know, and see if we could pick up, you know. Sounded like Bridgewater, New Orleans, you know. <laughs> and this guy, Bill looked at this guy and says, does he want to get sober? And they said, yeah, he, wants, he says he wants to get sober. And Bill says, if he wants to get sober, bring him on in, let's talk to him. Well, George not only sobered up, but George remained a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous for almost the next 20 years. He volunteered at Central Office and at our, World Service, our General Service Office. He became a great member. He didn't bring his transvestitism, if that's a word, in. You know, whatever the hell he was doing with whom or what. He didn't bring in his heroin addiction, although as a result of taking the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, he never used heroin again. He never drank again. He didn't bring his blackness into the deal. He became simply an alcoholic, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, we did things differently right from the start. We learned. And we had to swear, swear, the problems of money, property, and prestige. We don't own any property. You know, there's most of this group owns probably a couple of coffee pots, right? You know, a couple of coffee pots? My group, that's about all we own. A couple of coffee pots, a bulletin board, a... A banner with our name on it that we hang at some of the events that we go to. That's it. That's it. We don't seek any authority over any other groups or, or any, anyone else, really. Tradition 6 in the law form suggests that we don't affiliate with anything. You know, we have, AA, we have AAs who belong to clubs, but they're not AA clubs. We suggest that the clubhouse, so it could be free to start, it should be separately incorporated and managed. Because sometimes we have to get rid of those. We've had to get rid of one or two in the New Orleans area. You know, they kind of got diverted from things. They uh, became more of a poker parlor than anything else. And one of them built up a treasure of about eighty or $90,000. As a direct result of the backroom poker game. The meetings deteriorated to nothing, but they had a lot of money. Then one day, one guy ran off with the money. It's never been seen since. You know, that happened. And nobody's ever seen him since thing virtually collapsed. They have since reorganized, reopened. They now have some good groups going there, and they don't have poker anymore. You know, they, but we were able to freely discard that. The group that was meeting there was not the Boulevard Club. It was simply a group of alcoholics and others. So when the Boulevard Club got into trouble, <coughs> that group was not in trouble. We don't put a name on hospitals. We don't put a name on treatment centers. So we can freely discard that. This was a result of our experience, because we found that when we did tie these things to AA, 
He did not say the group would have to collapse if the business also collapsed. We don't go into business. Tradition 7. A groups ought to be fully self-supported by the voluntary contributions of their own members. It goes on to say in the long form, we think that each group should soon achieve this ideal and that any public solicitation of funds using the name of Alcoholics Anonymous is highly dangerous. We go on to talk about, about that. You know, the Shark Farm says we ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. This is something we had to learn. Remember, when originally we wanted to get the Rockefellers' money. We wanted to get it. And then we found out it was the great blessing of God that these good people who wished us well and did everything possible for us did not contribute to us. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the 40s, we started finally getting some contributions in the general service office. In 1947, we counted up and figured out that the Rockefellers and some of those other folks over there had advanced us a total of $12,000. And in 1947, we wrote a check to the Rockefeller Foundation for $12,000, sent them a nice thank you letter, and paid the money back. To this day, as far as I know, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only organization in this country that has ever paid back any foundation for what was advanced to it. And we paid it back with great gratitude and thanked them for, for, for the thing. And we became self-supporting through our own contribution. People started to list money in wills, saying, you know, we're going to leave. He said, we, we can't do that. If we get too much money in here, somebody's going to want to steal the money or somebody's going to want to run the joint. You know? And uh, we decided early on that, that we wouldn't accept contributions in wills. Then we said, well... We're going to let AA members be a little grateful, so we'll set a limit on it. I think it originally said about $500. It's up to $2,000 now with inflation, but $2,000 now is about the same as, as $500 would have been in 1950. So now, if, if you die, you can leave AA $2,000. If you're an AA member, if you're not an AA member, we'll just send it back, and we, and we do that all the time. We send the money back. Drives lawyers crazy. <laughs> what do you mean you don't want the money? What am I supposed to do? We don't care. But we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it. Recently, in New Orleans, an AA member died and left $10,000 to central office. We had four meetings on the thing. Four meetings to try to decide what to do. There was a group of people who said, well, central office really isn't AA. We keep the whole 10000 Other people said, yeah, but we're sort of representing AA. We can't keep the deal. Finally, they came up with a really good solution. They said, okay. We'll keep 2,000 years central office, we'll send 2,000 to New York, we'll send 2,000 to the area assembly, we'll send 2,000 over to the central office in Alexandria. They just sent it to send it around. Said, you know, the spirit of the tradition suggests that 2,000 is the most that anybody ought to get. This guy was a good AA member, he wanted to leave some money, but we're only going to take 2,000. Know? Think of another organization, if you can, that would, that would have to live this way. You know, because we have sworn off money, property, and power. We don't keep any money beyond the prudent reserve. My group keeps a $100 bill as our prudent reserve. We have for a long time. When we have a workshop and we make some money, like the time Bob was down there, you know, and we bring a bunch of people in and we may get an attendance, 100, 150 people, something like y'all did this weekend. And we have a voluntary registration fee and we may make something over and above our expenses. I think when Bob was there, we, we may have made $1,000 over our expenses. Our group conscious is that on Monday following the, the event, we take and divide that money four ways. And we send a quarter of it to New York. We send a quarter of it to our area assembly. We send a quarter of it to our New Orleans central office and a quarter to the Mississippi Gulf Coast central office. And we keep our hundred. We immediately get rid of our money. As a result of immediately getting rid of our money, my little group, which has 70, roughly 70 members, there are only three groups in the state of Louisiana that contribute more to GSO. Only three groups that contribute more to, to, to uh, our area assembly. 
Only two groups contribute more to the New Orleans Central Office. Oh. We constantly tell our groups, hey, and most of our guys put in, you know, if I sponsor you, I, uh, I strongly suggest, if you can afford it, newcomers accepted, you put in $5 at each, at each meeting. I put in a $5 bill at each meeting. We have many members of our groups that do that because we keep telling them we're giving all the money away. We keep telling them we're giving the money away. Hey, what are you doing with money? We're giving it away. We take the expenses. My group operates its own cell phone. We operate our own uh, uh, answering service. We, we started doing that a few years ago because we were unsatisfied with the central service answering service. And yet, we just give it away. The more you give, the more you get. It's a paradox of age. That's the way we work. I've also found that I can apply this provision in my life, this tradition. I found that all I have to do is be self-supporting through my own contribution. I no longer have to get rich. I no longer have to worry about anything. God takes care of the deal. As long as I'm self-supporting through my own contribution, then I'm doing just what Alcoholics Anonymous and the God of my understanding expect me to be doing. And God takes care of me. Has for low these 20 years. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. Whew, that's one, isn't it? Remember old Bill wanting to get that job with the town hospital, be the AA counselor in residence? Well, we have a lot of people that work in the field of alcoholism. This tradition specifically, specifically states that it's the 12th step work that you can't be paid for. If you're an alcoholism counselor, well, God bless you, as long as you don't call yourself an AA counselor. That then is professionalism. Our usual 12-step work is never to be paid for. How many of you, like me, have been on a 12-step call when somebody wants to give you something? God, it's crazy. You know, you go, I went visit this drunk Vance one time, you know, me and another guy. It was his first call, and, and he's drunk, 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 and he keeps going back into the kitchen saying that he has to check on the refrigerator or something. Of course, he's going back there and dipping on a bottle. And, and we talked to him for a while, and finally we're getting ready to leave because we figured we've done about as much as we can do. And, uh, and it's, it's real late. And I just casually said, I, I, I really like that movie poster. He had a Humphrey Bogart movie poster. I said, oh, I'm so grateful to you here. Take the poster, take the poster. No, no, I can't take the poster. I can't take the poster. Well, he follows me out to the car with the poster. He starts beating on my van, you know, trying to put the poster in. He ruins the poster. Oh, I kept telling him, I can't take the poster. Didn't see old Vance again for about six years. He showed up at a meeting last year. It seemed like he, did, he had found it necessary to, uh, after a 12-step call, he kind of disappeared. He found it necessary to spend about three years in prison, and he's finally come back to the group. But you, you never know when you plant the seed when, when it's going to sprout, you know. Laid fallow for a long time. But uh, it says our, our service center may employ special workers. You know, our taper is a special worker. Fits right there in Tradition A. He's not making money off Alcoholics Anonymous, just like Central Office Secretaries. What? Alcoholics Anonymous is found from the first, from 1950 onwards. I mean, we taped the first international convention. We established the tradition of having tapers in AA, but that AA itself did no taping. Because that would be putting us into business, right? Special worker. Special worker. Our Central Office Secretary, special worker. Here we've got this organization of two million people in this country, and our budget for the national budget is virtually just almost nothing. It's almost nothing. We have very few in the state of Louisiana. We have like three central office secretaries that are that are that are paid. That's the extent of our of our salaries. New York, uh, for a worldwide organization of of that produces all the literature that it produces, I mean, operates on a budget of a few million dollars a year, which is almost nothing. You know, you can look at any other organization and 
see that their, their budget would be ten times that amount. Because we're, we're essentially, we're non-professionals. I know there are people that try to professionalize AA. Some, some AA counselors, they, they call themselves AA counselors or whatever, you know, they're counselors from treatment centers. And, and you really get a problem there. You know, most, I get talking with Geraldine Delaney, who's dead now. And she got sober in the early 40s and for many years ran Elena Lodge in, uh, in New Jersey. Crusty old guy, wonderful guy, one of the greatest treatment centers in the country. She said 70% of all alcoholism counselors get drunk in the first five years. 70% get drunk in the first five years. Now this is from the babe that knows. She says they could think that they're doing Alcoholics Anonymous when they're working with the drunks. She says they work at my center, they have to attend a separate meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at least five times a week, not at the center. Says you need more AA when you work here rather than less rather than less. But that's been my experience too. I had two guys that I sponsored try for a year or so to work for a jitter joint. And they both became sad and they both became depressed because uh, uh, they weren't seeing any successes in there. Nobody was staying sober. And they found themselves becoming more and more obsessed. If fewer people stayed sober, they, they worked harder and harder at that. And they eventually had to, had to let go. Unfortunately, neither Hawk nor Buddy drank. They had to go do something else. There are a few people that can go ahead and do it. They're usually the people that also attend outside AA meetings. They don't confuse the one with the other. We're not treatment. Treatment can be a good thing. It points you in the direction of AA, but that's all it can do. And most of the treatment centers have collapsed, so we have this fabulous opportunity to do 12-step work today. At least they have in Louisiana. We have 67 treatment centers closed in the past seven years in Louisiana. Oh. We're back in the business of doing 12-step work again. We sober up drunks. We've sobered up quite a few on my couch. We've detoxed them. We use that method where we tell them, what, what brand, if you think this is going to be your last cup of liquor, we're going to buy it for it. What kind do you want? You want Crown Raw? Okay, here's a bottle of Crown Raw. We give them a little shot of Crown Raw, we add some water to it. Take them through a little while. When they start getting real jittery, it looks like they're going to go into DTs or something. Give them another shot, add water. Slow to dilute it. Period of about two days, you've detoxed you detox. They rarely turn blue. We have one guy that turned blue. We call him Old Blue today. You know? <laughs> we give them one convulsion. We think one convulsion is salutary for their sobriety. If they go into the second one, we call 911 and take them to the emergency room. <laughs> well, I think one convulsion is wonderful for your sobriety. Wonderful. Tradition 9. Each A group leads the least possible organization. Well, aren't we living proof of that? <laughs> this tradition was written for James. If there's anything, I am not organized. I am not organized. But this tradition means more than that. It means that we don't have a real structure or a real hierarchy in this, in, in this fellowship. I have observed that some of our area assemblies seem to be tending towards getting a little too much organization and chain of command, becoming just a little too structured. I'm becoming a little concerned about some of them. And I... I but uh, that's a topic for another day. But basically at our, our A group level and even at our general service office in, in New York City, it's the groups that control. Any other organization, the authority proceeds from the top down. You know, in the Army, the, the Secretary of, of the Army tells the Chief, uh, Chairman of the Chief of Staffs, who tells the General, who tells the Colonel, who tells the Major, who tells the Prior, you know, on the way down, who goes and kicks the private butt and makes him go do the work. Definitely a chain of command. Corporation, the same thing. 
Any business that's organized, we're not organized. We suggest that the such leaders as we have are but ser trusted servants of the whole. You know, there's no authority in being the head sick. No. Oh, you're chairman of your AA group. Try and put that on your resume. See who that's going to impress. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it means you're the number one winner? Okay. Uh, we do something in AA that almost no other organization does. Look around you in politics. How many politicians have you seen hold on to office for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? We believe in rotation. Tradition 9, we believe in rotation. We value inexperience. The quickest way to get a job in AA is to make a complaint at a meeting that something isn't getting done, and the meeting secretary will say, great, you do it. And then you'll say, but I don't know how to do it. Great, you're going to learn. Then as soon as you learn, they go find somebody else to do your job. You know, that's the way it works in AA. That's just the way, the way it works. I got to be GSR. I got elected GSR and, and, and the first time, and I thought it was because I was so spiritual and all done so well in my first year and they said no no you simply got a car you you, you can drive to Alexandria for the meetings you know kind of crushed me you know but uh, you know that, that's how we choose things around here but the fact is that we get in there and we do and we do the job and if you don't do the job we'll find somebody else to do the job we derive no authority no prestige from our titles if you're a group secretary well you simply do it and at some point or other we we, we rotate some, my group has one office that doesn't rotate. We just decided not to. We asked our treasurer. We decided that a treasurer, because uh, would be a good idea to have somebody in there really, really stable, who uh, we decided we wouldn't consider that an elective office. We'd call it an administrative position. So Charlie B's been the treasurer of our group for several years. We also figure he's got more money than God and he's unlikely to steal anything. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, we, we can combine the practical with the spiritual, you know. And, uh, uh, and, and that's just kind of the way we work in AA. You know, there, was, there has been, and there have been times, and our power of the purse is there, you know. If, if you're not doing it right in that group, people are going to stop, stop contributing. And your group's going to going to dwindle. You're not going to be able to meet your expenses. We've seen that happen in various groups. They'll go somewhere else. People vote with their feet in AA. Ten. No AA group or member should ever, in such a way to implicate AA, express any opinion on outside controversial issues, especially politics, alcohol reform, or sectarian religion. This was what killed the Washingtonian movement, getting involved in politics and all these issues that were seemed so important in the day that they dissolved. This is the idea that killed the Oxford groups that nobody's heard of today. They got renamed Moral Rearmament and have just virtually disappeared. Because they thought they could be all things to all people. And instead of being just a simple spiritual movement, as it started with men and then men and women gathering around in people's houses in order to pray and to listen to God and be of service to each other, they all of a sudden decided they were going to save the world and they were going to tell countries how to operate and states how to operate and they were going to adopt this agenda and promote that cause. And they disappeared. And Alcoholics Anonymous, we say, we have no opinion on that issue. You know, the first time this was called to my, called to my attention, uh, I, I was four or five months sober. I was in a meeting down at the Boulevard Club I was telling you about, and some guys got to talking during the meeting and then after the meeting on whether or not people ought to drink. And you heard some people saying, I ought to close all the bars. Alcohol's terrible. I'm not going to ever have it at my house. You know, and other people were saying, we don't care what people drink or not. You know, and, 
and Big Spine Devel. And I'm, I was looking back and forth, back and forth. And the old goat only lived a, a few blocks away, so I went on over to his house, which I did a lot because one of the things that attracted me to him, he was virtually always home. And I went over there and said, Ed, we had the most incredible discussion over there. You know, they were arguing over whether people ought to drink. I said, what do you think about it? He said, he has no opinion on drinking. I said, what? I said, hey, he's got to have an opinion on drinking. We're all about alcohol. He said, no, no, we're not. We have no opinion on drinking. We don't care whether people drink or don't drink. Our only opinion, under Tradition 10, is that if an alcoholic wants to stay away from one drink, one day at a time, we will go literally up through and into the gates of hell for him. But we don't care whether people drink or not. He says, in fact, there are a lot of people out there that really need to drink. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought of a few and kind of had to nod my head, you know. A couple that I wanted to buy a drink for. Um, But that they had no opinion on, on drink. And we have no opinion on, on religion. One of the ways this thing is, is being violated and it's in, in a, a matter of some concern to me, and that's why I reproduced on the back of the sheet the letter that Bill Wilson wrote on, in, and it's not a new issue, but it's in 1959, about the Lord's Prayer. You know, we don't endorse any causes, but we don't oppose any causes either. And there's quite a movement within the fellowship to uh, abolish all prayers, or especially to abolish the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was not said at the last international convention because of what I feel is a misinterpretation of this, of this tradition. It says in our big book, be quick to see where religious people are right, make use of what they offer. Now it doesn't say adopt any religion. It doesn't even say the Christian religion. In fact, we've got quotes in some of our books in the 12 and 12 from the Sanskrit, you know, about living one day at a time and such. But it says, be quick to see where they're right. Just make use of what they offer. Making use is not the same thing as adopting their religion. We've adopted many prayers. We've adopted all sorts of concepts from religion in our in our 12 steps. Bill had a concept he wrote on it friendly, uh, quite frequently. It's called, let's be friendly with our friends. You know, the Christian religion, the Catholic religion, the various Protestant denominations, the Jewish religion are by and large friendly to Alcoholics Anonymous. The Buddhist religion, you can read in A Comes of Age, where Bill talks about receiving correspondence from Buddhists, very friendly to Alcoholics Anonymous. There are elements of, the, of Islam that are friendly to Alcoholics Anonymous, but not all. But anyway, there are, there are enough, like I was telling you this morning. I know a guy from Afghanistan named Hamid, who's a mem- good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Met him at a meeting in New Orleans as he was passing through. You know? We make use of what they offer is not the same as an endorsement or having an opinion on it. We don't have an opinion. We simply do the things in IA that we've done. And one of the things that we've done is we've talked in serenity prayer. Many groups, not all use the large prayer. don't care whether you use it or not. But don't go start trying to club us with the traditions and saying, oh, you can't use it. No, you're a tolerance. You can use it if you want to and not use it if you don't want to. If it's being said at a meeting, you can say it or not say it. As Bill pointed out in this letter, we just say those who wish to join us, Join Those who don't, don't. So let's loosen up on, on this deal. You know, some people are trying to turn... Henrietta Cyberling said an interesting thing to Bill Wilson as the book was being written because there was a big controversy even then about the God Squad versus the non-God Squad, the atheists versus the agnostics. And uh, things were being taken in and put out and uh, uh, Jim Burwell was screaming from an atheist point of view and he's the guy that finally got the God as we understand it. And... Bill was talking to Henrietta Cyberling. You remember, she's the little lady who hosted that first meeting at the gatehouse. And she said, well, Bill, without God, AA is just another rotary club. You're all about God, as you understand Him. So let's not lose sight of that. Let's not lose sight of that's 
part of what we are. But it's God as you understand Him. You'll find your own higher power if you stay around and stay sober. And we won't tell you what it is. We don't know. (laughs) Eleven. Anonymity. Our relations with the general public should be characterized by personal anonymity. Principle of attraction rather than promotion. Maintaining personal anonymity at the level of praise. Press, radio, and films. And incidentally, those who quoted today as saying press, radio, TV, and films, that's absolutely wrong. We can't change a word in the tradition. But films means video, and radio means audio, so it's the same damn thing. You know, we, we don't need to add a bunch of words into it. It's, it's, pretty, well, it's pretty well covered. Now, this is a tradition that, interestingly enough, is violated a lot. Usually on the local level. Dr. Bob talks about this. He said, uh, he was very firm on this, that we can be a two anonymous. We can be so anonymous that uh, if we're going to uh, try to find each other in another town, or even in the same town if you've gone in the hospital. I was telling Moon here the other day, I said, well, suppose we go in the hospital, and I say, I understand Moon's in the hospital. Would you show me the Moon? And they're likely to lock me up in the psych ward and say, this boy's seeing Moon. Let's, let's just lock him up. We need to know each other who we are so that we can stay in touch. But that's at the group level. Now, each individual, especially newcomers, has a right to remain just as anonymous as you want. You don't want to give us your last name? Fine. You want to give us a phony first name? That's fine, too. But at some point, you grow out of that. And for the good of the group, for the first tradition, for group unity, and for also for your own personal recovery, we need to know who each other is so we can get in touch with each other. The level of anonymity is out there at the level of press, radio, and TV. Some of us speak occasionally at, uh, at high schools or other public deals. We can use our name then. Best to just use your first name. But, but we, you know, we, don't, we don't become a secret organization. CIA is an anonymous organization. That means anonymous means without a name. We're not a secret organization. I can think of one fellowship right now that's really having a trouble with that. And indeed, their numbers have slipped over the past decade or so through a misinterpretation of the principle of, of the 11th step. OA has gotten so secretive in my part of the country that they don't even allow speakers to announce their name from the podium when they're giving their talk. Now that's becoming a secret organization. And one of the things that I've seen down there is that OA's attendance at their meetings, and I know some people in OA, had plummeted over the past eight because they misunderstand that. They think that they have to be secret. All we're suggesting is we don't go do it out in public for a couple of very good reasons. First of all, we puff up our own egos. Purpose of 12 Steps reduce my ego. Cut James down to size, where I can just be at one with you and my God. And if I get too damn important out there, I'm very likely to drink. And we see this time and time again. How many celebrities have you seen that have come out and announced, just out of rehab, doing great, boy, going to that A&A and everything is wonderful, and then they show up drunk. I didn't bring all my magazine clips, but you know, there was... There was one here for People Magazine, you remember from a few years back, old Don Johnson and Eridus, you know, and he's on this page and he's out of rehab once again. Now, he had, a, he had broken his anonymity. Got drunk. Looks drunk on this page. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Melanie said he's sober, though. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, we see that every day. Our experience suggests that those who break their anonymity at the public level drink. Which is not good for them, it's not good for Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the reasons the Washingtonians collapsed is because some of their leaders got drunk and everybody found out about it and said, well, if it didn't work for them, it won't work for me, and they, and they quit. So, 
It's for individual protection and it's for the protection of the fellowship. Some anonymity breaks are really inadvertent. There's the son of a, a, a man whose brother was president of the United States and both the president and the brother got assassinated and the assassinated attorney general's son his anonymity was broken in Newsweek a couple of years ago. He got really angry about it. He didn't break the anonymity. It was the press that broke his anonymity. And he didn't like it very much because he's a good A member. Huh? And part of this is I think our general service office has really fallen down on uh, communicating to the press why we're anonymous. This is one of the things that led to the phenomenal growth of our program because we didn't try to get anything out of it. We weren't working an angle. We weren't trying to raise funds. We're the only group on the face of the earth that doesn't have people out at street corners shaking cans and, and getting uh, uh, fundraising drives and we don't uh, solicit any money from the United Way and we don't have rock stars doing concerts for us to, to raise money. You know? And we stay anonymous. And somehow this has fallen down. Uh, my, my good friend Charlie B tells me that we have recently completely reorganized and I'm hoping this is going to work the way we're handling public relations at, uh, at GSO in New York. By the way we're going to be notifying the media about mm -hmm. anonymity and, and, you know, just, because all we can do is ask for their cooperation. We can't insist on any of it. But uh, I'm very hopeful right now for the first time in a long time that this is going to be, uh, that this is going to be handled. We stay anonymous at the public level. Not in here. Not in here. Let's get to know each other in here. If you need anonymity, keep it. My group puts out membership list so we can get to know each other. We put our phone numbers and our sobriety dates on it. Almost everyone on this list, and you can see this up here afterwards, uses their last name. Only passed out to group members. We have a separate list we pass out, 12-step list to, to newcomers. But if you become a group member, and it's only current members. We have, a, you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, but we figure if you haven't been to our group in two months, you get dropped from our list. We haven't seen you in two months, you're off the list. Reinstatement, automatic. All you gotta do is come back. That's easy enough, isn't it? We're not instant honorary members. You're not showing up. You are not part of the deal. You're not part of the deal. Same thing in AA. You go drink. You're no longer a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The minute you take that drink, you are no longer a member. You want to become a member again? Show up at another meeting. We'll let you right back in. You'll be a member right then. That's the way it works. Winston, who's currently trying now, because people that are currently trying now are the winners in this program. People that are here today are the winners. People that are sponsoring people, doing 12-step work. Those are the winners. Tell who the winners are. You know, it, it, isn't, it isn't a big mystery. It's the guy who shows up to make coffee. It's the people who show up before the meeting and are shaking your hand when you're coming through the door and will hang around a little later and give, you a, give somebody that needs a ride, that ride, and put a couple of bucks in extra for the scholarship fund. It's the newcomers who may not have any money to put into the deal but are coming in here and setting up these chairs and trying to help things out. No. That's who the winners are in Alcoholics Anonymous. The people that are currently trying, currently doing this deal. And, and, and that's who we are, and that's who we get to know each other. But we get to know each other at the group level and not at the public level. And we'll respect your anonymity outside of here. You know, if I see you on the street, I may nod at you if you're with some other, I, I may wave at you, in fact, I may hug you. But if you're with some people that I don't recognize, I'm not going to bust your anonymity by going up and giving you a big hug and saying, hey man, see you at the AA meeting tonight. Uh, I don't know. These, these could be people you're doing business with. Maybe you want to protect their anonymity. If I don't know the situation, I'm going to be very sensitive to your anonymity in public. I'll say, hi, how you doing? And just pass right on by. 
If I get the impression you want me to even say hi, how are you doing, I might just nod or just pass on by. Try to be sensitive to that. We have a right to be protected out there. And we don't have to bust our anonymity out there. I see newcomers come in all the time, violate this tradition, by immediately going and advertising to every prospective job applicant, every uh, uh, person out there they possibly can if they're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you don't have to advertise it. Come in here and be protected by anonymity. Talk with your sponsors whether you need to go bust your anonymity with everybody that you're talking to. Now work this thing out. Work this thing out. Anonymity is a protection. Is a protection. And finally, we're about out of time. We believe that the principle of anonymity is an immense spiritual significance. Okay. Let's go back just for one second. I'm about ready to close this thing down. You remember Bill Wilson got this book, The Varieties of Religious Spirits, in, uh, in the hospital. And William James talks about all these people who have had these magnificent spiritual experiences. And they've always drawn a crowd of people around. There's something about somebody that's had a, a big deal happen in their life that makes people want to go along with them. Uh, St. Francis wrote St. Francis' prayer. You know, one of the great spiritual people of all time. But immediately attracted a bunch of people around and said, we want to be Franciscans. William James talks about that in here. He says, you know, what seems to happen is that this person will have the spiritual experience. Now, he wants to go out and spread this message. And what he's spreading is a very spiritual message of, of, of purity and of love. You read St. Francis' prayer, which our, we call our 11-step prayer, which is one of the instances of making use of what religious people offer without adopting it. You'll see that this man, you know, he talked about being a channel of peace, about bringing love where there was hatred. You know, he's good, good stuff. Well, his followers want to institutionalize it. They want to organize it. They want to make... Uh, the deal out of it, you know. And here we have this simple St. Francis turns into the Franciscans, this incredibly complicated <coughs> order of monks that's existed for hundreds of years now and owns property all over the world. I'm not putting down the Franciscans. As orders go, I'm sure they're just fine. But we found a way, because of the immense spiritual significance of the principle of anonymity, which is nothing more than humility in action, which is nothing more than doing something for somebody else without taking credit for it, we found a way to avoid this pitfall that William James points out that happened to every spiritual movement which came about as a result of a spiritual experience. We have found a way to avoid that. We found a way to avoid these divisive major controversies over who could be a member. We let anybody be a member. As long as you're not caught, you're a member. You don't own any property, so we got nothing to fight over. We, uh, we stick to what we do. I think Alcoholics Anonymous has a great destiny. I think in some small measure we're already seeing it. We have because we have stuck to our principle of anonymity and the, and the principles expressed in these traditions. We have created much good. There are literally several hundred programs going on throughout the world, some of which we've mentioned, like and some of which you all are members of the fellowships of Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Such diverse things as uh, 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 Sex Addicts Anonymous. That was when Virgil was telling me they do 90 women in 90 days. I don't know. It's <laughs> not a good idea to me. I was wondering how I could become a member. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But literally a couple of hundred, Emotions Anonymous, Families Anonymous, you go right on down the list. We have created great good. I think the great destiny of 
of Alcoholics Anonymous is to place God right back in the middle of his existence, in our existence, right in the middle of our society where theology and sociology and all the ologies have taken him, theologies have taken him out of it. But we can only, we can only do that, and we've only done all this great good so long as we stick to our primary purpose and do nothing else and express the great humility of only trying to do one thing, which is to help another alcoholic, to help another drunk. If we stick to what we're doing, the ripple effect is enormous. The spiritual effects we've had upon the Soviet Union and upon other countries is amazing. You know, we have spread a whole new lingo throughout the world. We've spread the message of the 12 steps without ever trying to spread it beyond ourselves. If we were trying to spread it, it wouldn't have spread. The 12 steps were barred, by and large, from uh, religion and philosophy. But we, in, we came up with the 12 traditions. We found a new way to live. We found a new way to express the great needs that I was talking to you about earlier, this fellowship that we craved. You know, and as I closed the meeting the other night, at page 152, we, we found this way to come together, to bring this spirit of, of the God of our understanding into these roads. We can, I cannot recover in a vacuum. I simply can't do it. I'm too insecure inside. My own spiritual recovery isn't that good to all the time know that I'm in conscious contact with God. If I have a little contact every, every day, but I can come here with you folks and know it's working. And if I see you on a daily basis because of that first tradition, if I'm working with you, if I'm sponsoring you or you're just part of my home group, and I see you overcoming things that, uh, in, in your life, and I see you becoming happy, joyous, and free, and I observe the grace of God working in your life. I can see it there when often I can't see it in my own. And as I see it working in yours, I know surely it must be working in mine. Surely, surely it is. And I feel, I feel the power and the spirit that we bring, in, we bring into these rooms. You know, it asks in this thing, in, in this book, yeah, yes. Yes, I'm willing, but am I be consigned to a life where I should be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? Asked the question in my big book. Yes, there is a substitute. And it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something less. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. So will you. And I want to close by what it says here in this, in this 12th tradition. But why in, in the final analysis, why in the final analysis do we do this all? I've, I've never heard it put any better than it is in the 12th tradition in the long form. It says that the principle of anonymity, that's doing something without any hope of reward, doing it in all humility, doing it just because we want to do it. For fun, for free, like a, we've all done this weekend this year. It's of immense spiritual significance. It reminds us we're to place principles before personalities that we're actually practice a genuine humility. And the reason I do this all is expressed in this last line. This to the end that our great blessings may never spoil us. And we should forever live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all.
I thank you for your attention today, and I thank you for your lives. May God bless and keep you today. Billy and I'm an alcoholic. Uh,